Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Welcome, everybody, to the Heritage Foundation. Uh, I would ask that you uh, take a moment to make sure that your phones are silenced. Uh, I am John Malcolm. I'm the vice president of the Institute for Constitutional Government here. I want to welcome you to the first uh, event in our fall Preserve the Constitution series, Court Heal Thyself, the Let's War Against Judicial Independence. I hope you pick up uh, some of the uh, programs of our series of events. We have seven of them, uh, and I hope to see you, a number of you, uh, at our next event, which will be next Thursday. It will be our Supreme Court uh, preview with Paul Clement and Sarah Harrington. So recently, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island filed an amicus brief in the Supreme Court in a Second Amendment case. In that brief, which was filed on behalf of himself, and four other Democratic senators, Senator Whitehouse contends that a large number of judicial nominees under this administration are, gasp, members of the Federalist Society. And he argues that, quote, corporate and Republican political interests are prevailing too often before the high court, at least in the view of these five senators. Whitehouse added that according to public opinion polls, a majority of Americans now believe that the Supreme Court is too influenced by politics, and perhaps it is time to restructure the Supreme Court to reduce the influence of politics. White House concluded his brief by saying that, quote, the Supreme Court is not well, and the people know it. Perhaps the court can heal itself before the public demands it to be restructured in order to reduce the influence of politics. This threat to restructure the court, the court, of course, mirrors various other proposals by several Democratic senators to pack the court along the lines attempted by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt when the court invalidated portions of his New Deal legislation in the late 1930s. What to make of these implied threats? Are these attempts to intimidate the court to peek behind the blindfold that Lady Justice wears and perhaps to tip the scales that she holds in order to rule the way that these senators and their liberal constituents would find more to their liking? Was Senator Whitehouse writing a friend of the court brief or an enemy of the court brief? Was Senator Whitehouse urging the court to heal itself, H-E-A-L, or as we suggest in the title to this program, to heal itself, H-E-E-L. I would also note that Senator Whitehouse's 25-page brief that there were numerous citations to articles and opinions written by Chief Justice John Roberts. Was this a coincidence? 
And what about the confirmation process? In the last two years, we have witnessed two brutal confirmation hearings for Justices Neil Gorsuch and Justice Brett Kavanaugh. That fight seemed to continue this past weekend with a New York Times story and renewed calls from various Democrats to impeach Kavanaugh, whose robes on the court are barely dry. Has the confirmation process become too politicized? And if so, how did this happen? And what, if anything, can we do about it? Here to address this issue, we have three outstanding speakers. Kerry Severino is the chief counsel and policy director of the Judicial Crisis Network. A graduate of Harvard Law School, she clerked for Judge David Sentel on the DC Circuit and for Justice Clarence Thomas. Kerry has testified several times before Congress and has briefed senators on judicial nominations. She has written on a wide array of topics and is a frequent media commentator on legal issues. And she is the co-author of a new book on the Kavanaugh confirmation uh, hearing entitled Justice on Trial, the Kavanaugh Confirmation, and the Future of the Supreme Court. John Yu is the Emanuel Heller Professor of Law at Berkeley Law School. He's a graduate of Yale Law School and clerked for Judge Lawrence Silberman on the DC Circuit and also clerked for Justice Thomas. For two years, John served as the General Counsel of the Senate Judiciary Committee and from 2001 to 2003, he served as a Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Office of Legal Counsel at the Department of Justice. He is the author of several books on national security and executive power, and is also a frequent commentator on legal issues. And last but not least, my colleague Tom Jipping is the Deputy Director of the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies here at Heritage. Prior to joining Heritage last year, he worked for 15 years on the staff of Senator Orrin Hatch, including several as the chief counsel on the Senate Judiciary Committee. At Tom's final meeting on the, of the Judiciary Committee while he was there in April 2018, Senator Hatch said that Tom is, quote, a true expert who knows everything there is to know about nominations. A graduate of SUNY Buffalo Law School, Tom Clerk for Judge William Hutchison on the Third Circuit. And prior to joining Senator uh, Hatch's staff. He worked at Concerned Women for America as a senior legal fellow and is a vice president for policy and director of the Center of Law and Democracy at the Free Congress Foundation. So let's get started. Kerry, so you uh, are a veteran of this. You clerked for Justice Thomas uh, and you have followed the confirmation process extremely closely. What is your opinion of what's going on? Well, uh, thanks so much for for having me. I love the I love the Thomas theme throughout. The two people who work for him and, and and Tom, who actually helped get him uh, confirmed to the court. So, uh, you're, you're, I think you're welcome. Yes, I mean, and and, and, I, and that that confirmation is this illustration that it's unfortunately nothing that new that the confirmation process is broken. Uh, it, it, and we can say at least since 1991, but I think obviously we can go back then to the Bork confirmation before that. Um, as we as we detail a little in our book, um, it talk, we, it's a real problem that um, has mostly gotten, quote, worse and worse as Republicans have started getting better and better at actually nominating judges who aren't going to be simply tools of the left to achieve their political goals by other means, which for a long time uh, was the the mo of the courts. And so once uh, Reagan decided to, with the help of of uh, General Meese, obviously said we're going to try to appoint some judges who have a principled approach to the Constitution, there was a major pushback, and uh, it has 
just continued to increase ever since then. And we see it getting worse every time there's a um, potential shift in the court. So if you replace a swing vote like Judge Bork was going to do, um, or like Justice Kavanaugh uh, did, or you replace a judge of the uh, a justice of the other um, opposite end of the uh, I guess judicial philosophy spectrum, like Thomas did. That's when things get particularly crazy. Um, so that unfortunately, this has been going on for a long time, but it certainly does seem to be getting uh, worse in the sense that. You know, the Kavanaugh confirmation, for example, I, when I was talking about it beforehand, I would always say, oh, this is there's going to be smears and, dis and distractions and people um, misconstruing his record. But I always stopped short of what I wanted to say rhetorically, which is this is going to be the worst confirmation process ever, because I thought, no, Thomas's was the worst confirmation process ever. And I think, unfortunately, we've reached a new low. Um, and when if you if you asked uh, probably Justice Thomas, Justice Scalia, what the problem is, I think they would say it's because if you have judges who are acting like politicians, you're going to have a political process for their confirmation. Now, the Constitution makes it a political process in the sense that it's our elected representatives that nominate and the president and confirm with the Senate. So there's that. But I think when it, it, it doesn't, if you had justices who were um, behaving more like a trying trying to have an objective approach to the law rather than having judicial philosophies that almost invite one's own personal philosophy in, you we wouldn't have to have this process. Um, so I think that is ultimately the real source of why it's getting worse and worse. But it does uh, make it, it does raise a lot of questions for how much worse can it get? How can we stop this? And how is that another tool of intimidation of the court? Because you know, we saw after Justice Thomas was confirmed, they didn't just pack up and go home. It, there, were, there was a continued drumbeat of uh, trying to rewrite history, really, and reimagine the story. And uh, when he was confirmed, two, two to one, Americans believed Thomas Overhill. And I think if you took that poll today, after decades of uh, propaganda uh, in academia, um, in the media, on HBO, you know, people would not necessarily see it that not something where they... It just it, it ends at confirmation. It continues to be a campaign to discredit Deborah Katz, um, who was Christine Blasey Ford's lawyer, alluded to this and recently released footage that Ryan Lovelace uh, found in his 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 other book on the Kavanaugh confirmation. She said we wanted to put an asterisk next to his name. So there's this now continued campaign of how can we affect this long term legacy of a justice by trying to smear them in the campaign in the confirmation process. That's really a bad bad for our country. And I, you're certainly right about Justice Thomas. I mean, I think the latest polls now have it exactly the other way. It's two to one now. Believe I wouldn't be her, and you know, and the, the African American Museum had you know, big pictures of her and big discussions of her, and it was only after protests that they even put in anything about about uh, about Clarence Thomas. Um, and of course, the justice's ability to fight back is uh, severely limited, to say to yes. say the least. Uh, John, what's your uh, your take as a, a veteran of all of this, uh, both as an observer and having worked in the Senate Judiciary Committee? Uh, thanks, John. I'd like to thank the Heritage Foundation for putting this panel together and timing it exactly in conjunction with the New York Times publication <laughs> schedule. Uh, good job. Uh, and I like John's new look. I don't know if you've noticed, but he now is taking on the appearance of a Civil War reenactor. Uh, Aaron, I haven't seen you since you've adopted this new look. Um, where's your musket? Um, but it's really good to be on this panel with uh, Carrie and Tom, who've worked on the uh, confirmation fights, I think, much uh, longer, more intensely than I have. But I have been uh, 
general counsel of the Judiciary Committee, and also worked on it on the Senate's, uh, I mean, on the Justice Department side, although we had no Supreme Court appointments when I was there. Uh, I, I wanted to raise a new thing, the, address the Kavanaugh uh, accusations that were out over the weekend, because I think that does represent not just a sort of new low, as Carrie said, in terms of just partisan politics, but could represent a new institutional low, which I thought we had rejected since the Jefferson administration, which was the use of the tool of impeachment as a weapon against judges with whom one disagrees. Uh, as uh, Carrie mentioned, and as John mentioned, uh, because of these New York Times, this New York Times story in this forthcoming book, over the weekend that raises a second case of alleged sexual harassment by uh, Justice Kavanaugh when he was a freshman in college. And we can even have a debate whether one's activities as a freshman in college or as a high school student should even have anything to do with your fitness to be a Supreme Court justice. But this accusation allegedly was uh, provided to the FBI by uh, Max Steyer, and uh, was not investigated. Actually, it was passed on to him, both to, by him and by Senator Chris Coons, um, who I would like to say overlapped with me and Brett Kavanaugh and Chris Ray at the Yale Law School all at the same time. So it's not like any of these people don't know each other and couldn't get something investigated if they really uh, wanted to. Um, but we, and, I, and I think we'll talk about what you know, my druthers would be, if the Democrats want to have an impeachment investigation, the actually if the people they should be upset about are the FBI, right? Because what really happened was not that Kavanaugh uh, lied under oath about some accusation he was never presented with at the hearings. It's that the senators uh, who voted against him are upset that the FBI didn't follow up on probably one of 100,000 different leads that were provided. So it seems to me if they want to have an investigation, they should call Mr. Steyer and have him testify under oath. Right now he refuses to even um, talk to the New York Times on the record or the Washington Post on the record. So let's have him come up to the Senate or the House and testify under oath about what he actually saw. And then uh, the newspapers don't name the alleged victim. Uh, the alleged victim apparently doesn't remember this happening. There are no other eyewitnesses. We could have her come testify too. Apparently, the um, newspapers don't name her, which I think is a fine policy. But Carrie, who has all kinds of access to the uh, inventory rooms of Barnes & Noble, has a copy of the book. And she says in the book they do name her, uh, which you know seems to run counter to the policy of the New York Times news pages. But nonetheless ask her a question under oath and see whether any of this is true. And then let's see whether uh, if the uh, FBI wants to explain why they chose not to investigate it, they can explain that to Congress too. But it seems their beef is not with Kavanaugh, it's with the FBI. But put that aside, the real problem I think is that the new low we're going to see is the use of not just pre-confirmation material to wage this kind of political battle, which unfortunately we've seen but now it's going to extend to after the confirmation, that you're going to start to see uh, opponents of Supreme Court justices attempt to keep attacking people who are already on the court. I think, one, there's a constitutional problem with this, at least in this case, and then a political problem. The constitutional problem is it's not clear to me that the Kavanaugh hearings and the confirmation process and how it worked would be grounds for impeachment. I mean, you could look at the Constitution. 
It says you can impeach the justices of the Supreme Court um, if they don't engage in good behavior to, while they're a justice of the Supreme Court. All of this stuff has to do with things he did before he was a justice. It's not clear to me that the Constitution allows impeachment. Now, there's one case of a, a lower federal court judge who was impeached for his activities before he was a judge and things like bribery and so on. So there is one precedent the other way. It's never come up with a Supreme Court justice. I think there's a good constitutional case that Kavanaugh cannot be impeached for things that arose during the confirmation process. Uh, and I, uh, the Supreme Court has said the whole impeachment process is a political question. It would be interesting to see whether they would apply that political question test to their own membership uh, by, uh, by another – when impeachment is being used by another branch of government to theoretically undermine the independence of the Supreme Court itself as an institution. Then the second thing is the political aspect of it. And I, I do agree with Carrie on this point. Why is this happening? It's, I, I just wanted to amend one thing she said. So one of the part of it is the justices of the Supreme Court. They have become so uh, political in the questions they answer. If you care about gun control or abortion rights or affirmative action or religion, things that used to be the subject of legislation and the political process are now the subject or under the control of the Supreme Court. The only way to affect policy on these political issues is to affect the membership of the Supreme Court. So it's no surprise that we see the migration of all the bad things in the political electoral process shift over to the Supreme Court. But I also would place the blame on the current Supreme Court and particularly the Chief Justice, I'm afraid to say, John Roberts. Because let's think about some of the things he's done as Chief Justice, which unfortunately I believe make people who are opposed to Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, think they can influence the Supreme Court with this kind of activity. Recall there's the account that Chief Justice John Roberts originally voted to strike down the Obamacare law and that under pressure from President Obama and Senator Leahy and people in the Senate attacking him, allegedly he switched his vote. So if you are an opponent of conservatives, what are you going to do more of after that worked in the biggest Supreme Court case perhaps of the last 10 years? Or think about Chief Justice Roberts going out in public and saying there's no Obama judges or Bush judges. They're just judges, right? Wouldn't it be better if the chief justice just pretended he never read the newspapers and felt he had to make a statement about what people are saying about federal judges in the political realm? It's the fact that Chief Justice Roberts feels that he ought to respond to and participate in political debates. It's only encouraging more of these efforts to influence its decisions through political pressure. And so what's the last thing? And, and of course, all of this is probably an effort because people think this is going to work on Kavanaugh too, right? Kavanaugh just joined the bench. I don't think the Democrats seriously think they're going to impeach him, but they think they might be able to affect him. And they think they can affect the next people who are going to be uh, confirmed for future vacancies of the Supreme Court. So the – and here I'll, I'll turn back to the lesson maybe I saw from clerking for Justice Thomas. I won't say how many years before Carrie that actually occurred uh, because we look in appearance about the same age, I hope. <laughs> but what is the answer? I think it's what Justice Thomas did. He stuck to a principled jurisprudence of originalism. He ignored all these attacks. Maybe what Carrie's saying and John's saying are true about changing opinion polls. I can tell you Justice Thomas doesn't care about those opinion polls. The more the justices show that all this doesn't affect them, the less that people in the Senate or the House will do it. And that's the real – the more they play footsie with the political process like Roberts or Kennedy and 
I hope not, but perhaps Kavanaugh, that invites just more and more attacks, more and more spiraling downwards into the lowest levels of partisan politics. Thank you. So, so Tom, you've been through, you know, witnessed more of these confirmation uh, uh, fights than, than anybody. You know, has it has it always been this bad? Is it getting worse? What do you What do you think? Well, my my first um, Supreme Court confirmation. Uh, participating in it was actually while I was still in law school. I worked for uh, the summer of 1986 while I was still a law student for Antonin Scalia on the D.C. Circuit when he was appointed to the Supreme Court. Now imagine 98 to 0, Antonin Scalia, Ted Kennedy voted for him. Okay? And it was one year later after the Senate changed hands uh, that Robert Bork was defeated and it's been on a different course ever since. Um, I, I do think that um, we need to put the individual conflicts over nominees in their proper context. Every conflict over an individual nominee is actually part of the broader conflict over judicial power. How much power should judges have in our system of government? Uh, the, the conflicts play out a little differently here and there, but the broader background of it and the context of it is the same. Why do... Um, why would uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein care about what Amy Barrett's religious beliefs are? Why would uh, Senator Blumenthal uh, attack some a nominee because he belongs to the Knights of Columbus? Why would, for that matter, why would um, you know senators care why a judicial nominee wrote something in their uh, school newspaper 25 years ago. It's because the left believes judges decide cases based on their personal views. So they want to know what those personal views are. And these are all bits and pieces that they, that they say, that they believe, will tell them kind of what's in the, the, the judges or the nominee's heart. Remember, uh, Barack Obama, when he was a senator, 2005, opposed John Roberts. He said judges decide cases based on their core concerns, their view about how the world works, their empathy, and what's in their heart. That's what the left believes. So all of these conflicts are about whether it's uh, Thomas and how that played out, Kavanaugh, all the ones that are happening today with, with Trump lower court nominees, uh, it's all about that fundamental issue, and frankly, I wish we could get uh, the debate geared more toward that issue about what on earth judges are supposed to do in our system of government because there's, the, the left cannot win that argument. So, so that, I think, is, is the broader context for, how, uh, for, for when these individual conflicts play out. You know, you mentioned... Um, uh, the idea that if the court wasn't so powerful or the courts weren't so powerful, the confirmation process would be a lot more normal. Uh, Justice Scalia spoke at my alma mater and, and said just that. He said, if judges have the last word on what our laws and the Constitution mean, every confirmation is going to be a hot political hot potato, he called it. And that's kind of putting it mildly. And that's, that is why uh, this is all happening. There are other ways, though, that uh, the left uh, is undermining the independence of the judiciary in addition to these kinds of we're going to restructure you if you don't uh, heal and this kind of thing. Some of the research we've been doing here at the Heritage Foundation 
on the, the, the level of opposition, for example, to Trump's uh, judicial nominees. You have uh, 43% of all the no votes cast in the history of America have been cast against Trump nominees in the last two and a half years. The Senate has confirmed thousands of judges, almost 4,000 judges before Trump came into office. Only 6% of them had any opposition at all, even a single no vote. Trump's, uh, almost 60% of Trump's nominees have been opposed. I mean, you have 10 times the level of opposition against his nominees than in all of American history prior to his taking office. Why? Um, I think the, the confirmation process itself is being weaponized and redirected and simply used as a, a, a front in the war against the president. They're almost ignoring what the qualifications of the nominees are. They're ignoring even what uh, Democrats themselves used to do in terms of the standards that they apply. And now it's a reflexive, uh, I'm going to vote against you solely because you are a nominee of that president. And that undermines the judiciary. That only feeds the misperceptions and misunderstanding of the American people about what the courts are about, what judicial independence means. Uh, and it just feeds the perception that if it's a decision I don't like, it must be wrong. If it's a decision I like, it must be right. And that's uh, fertile ground for these other kinds of efforts uh, to try to pack the courts, to you know, threaten to restructure them. You know, Senator Whitehouse is right. Uh, people do believe that the courts are influenced by politics, but the solution to that is not for the government, for other parts of the government, to literally, physically, structurally manipulate the courts in a more political direction. So um, I do think it's worse than it's been, but, it's, but that's because the broader uh, debate over how much power judges are supposed to have is still going on. What did you make of this, um, of this White House brief and these calls to pack the court? I mean, so, you know, we remember when Barack Obama during the State of the Union address chided the Supreme Court justices who were sitting right in front of them for, uh, for Citizens United. And, you know, John talked about uh, NFIB versus Sebelius and whether the Chief Justice flipped his vote and heard the same thing with King v. Burwell. And you're actually hearing it a little bit now with respect to the census case. Uh, what, what do you make of all of this? And, you know, how should the court react? How should people react? You know, I, I'm a little surprised that nobody on, on the left or the American Bar Association or whatever has, has come out and talked about uh, talked about this in terms of the threats to the judiciary. Well, I, I remember 20 years ago um, during the Clinton administration, uh, the Democrats, the Clinton administration, the ABA were apoplectic about a crisis uh, of judicial independence, that there were these threats. And the threats that were going on at the time were simply criticism, simply people speaking out about cases that they thought were wrongly decided. And that was enough for the ABA to create a commission on judicial independence, a standing committee. I testified before the commission, the, the, a committee on judicial independence. They were going crazy. And today, with kinds of threats uh, that are off the charts compared to whatever was going on then, they are absolutely silent. And, and frankly, I wish that uh, um, 
particularly Republican senators, uh, ought to have a campaign to shame the ABA into speaking to this. People don't know that uh, uh, that, that was their position then, that, that, that in fact they've taken judicial independence very seriously, and they're sitting this one out and they shouldn't be allowed to do so. Well, one unlikely defender was Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who actually stood up and said, this is not a good idea, let's not do this. It was the, the court packing, at least, tried and failed. And she actually has also pushed back recently on people uh, she was on a panel, and they, basically the, the moderator claimed more or less that Trump's nominees, uh, who she obviously serves with, were really just – they weren't picked because of their qualifications. They weren't picked, but they were just these kind of political picks to achieve it. And, and she said, no, these they, those justices are smart, decent people. And uh, so I have to say, it, 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 at least um, they, there has been that uh, level from uh, from some quarters. I think what you're seeing – often is this running to the left, particularly in an election year and, and when uh, people are trying to establish themselves as the most extreme candidate where they're willing to sign on to anything. They want to you know, rework every aspect of the Constitution from the uh, Electoral College down to the, the Supreme Court justices. So it's, it's, uh, it's concerning, but I think it's good to see that at least there is that one voice, and she reminds people that it didn't work so well with uh, FDR, although I, some some will say I think there's actually historical debate now when the vote by the, the switch in time that people say saved nine, maybe that actually happened before uh, uh, the FDR's court packing plan, but be that as it may, the perception certainly was that the court shifted because they were frightened of what the what the president and the Congress might do to it if they didn't accede to their wishes. And I think that that's that is what's really going on here. I think the likelihood that any that you could actually get the House and the Senate and the president all to agree, hey, let's make a 15 member Supreme Court. And let's mandate that eight of them are members of the, Demo- the Democratic Party, which seems to be what what uh, some of these people want to do. Um, that's not likely to actually happen. But I think they're hoping that they can intimidate use it as almost a hot Hostage. Hey, you know, here's your here's your court being held hostage, and the integrity and in the in the, the way that it's treated by by uh, just you, you better do what we what we say. And I hope it doesn't work. You know that that court packing legislation of FDRs was introduced right after he was reelected in 1936 at a huge landslide. I mean, the 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 Congress was probably four to one Democrat, right? And it was the Democratic Senate Judiciary Committee that rejected most soundly that legislation. And one senator, the report actually says, whatever problems you have with individual decisions of the court or whatever, the the, the cost of trying to manipulate the judiciary in that way far outweigh uh, any benefit you're going to get, better off to just let the natural process of appointment of judges. And what happened? Exactly how it Roosevelt was. did pack the court. He appointed eight justices in five years. He did it the old-fashioned way. But it was the Democratic uh, Senate and the Democratic House that rejected that idea. They had it right, and we've got to remind people of that. We've got to tell people. This isn't just, you know, Sheldon Whitehouse didn't just come up with this. Uh, he's, he's the one who's radically departing from the, uh, the consensus that, that existed for 200 years about the kind of judiciary we need, the independent judiciary that we need. He's the radical. John, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, that's an intellectual matter. I don't have a problem with altering the size of the Supreme Court. I mean, it's clearly within Congress's 
uh, powers. You wouldn't want the Congress to do it to influence the ideological outcomes of the court, but it could if it wanted to. Uh, what strikes me about the court packing, it's not just Senator Whitehouse. I mean, this is several uh, nominees running. I mean, can't keep track of how many they are, who their names are even. They all sound the same to me. Um, but, you know, this is, I think, at least three or four presidential candidates uh, have endorsed the idea of expanding the size of the Supreme Court. But if you think about it, it's a, a solution. It's a response to the wrong problem. Uh, what they have a dispute with is the outcome of the 2016 election. I mean, the 2016 election puts, I mean, more than any other election I remember, puts squarely on the ballot the future of the Supreme Court. Uh, you might remember at a key moment in the prime, Republican primaries when it was still between Trump and Cruz, President Trump did something unprecedented. Or he came out with a list of actual people that he would pick from to put on the Supreme Court. That, I don't think that had ever happened before. Uh, and it was a, a remarkable device of self-commitment by Trump to conservatives that he could be trusted. And I think a lot of conservatives who might not like to have Trump personally or might not have liked other aspects of Trump's policies – supported Trump because of that promise. And he's kept that promise. Uh, I didn't actually expect him to keep that or any other promises, but he has kept that promise to stick to the list that's been developed. I think, Malcolm, you probably made up that list, you and uh, the Federal <laughs> Society from, my, from the reports I read. But, um, you know, the, the, but that was an important aspect of the election, right? The Democrats... What they really want, the ones who are proposing changing the size of the Supreme Court, it's not really they dislike. They dislike the fact that Trump won in 2016 based on a promise of Supreme Court justices. The second thing they're fighting about really, again, the size of the Supreme Court really is not the answer is they're upset about the way the Senate works internally. Because what are they really upset about? What are they really reversing? They claim they're reversing the fact that McConnell, Senator McConnell stole the, what's called the Scalia seat by refusing to schedule a vote for Merrick Garland to replace Justice Scalia in the last year of Obama's presidency. Now, there's a lot of arguments one can have about whether a president who nominates a Supreme Court justice has ever had one confirmed in the last year of his presidency by a Senate controlled by the opposite party. You can go over interesting, amusing things Biden and Senator Biden and Senator Schumer said about George W. Bush getting to appoint a nominee in the last year of his presidency. But this is just a fight about the Senate and whether the majority leader has the right to delay the votes, which I think he does, and, and in scheduling any Supreme Court nominee or any judicial nominee for a vote. I mean, you could talk about, let's have Miguel Estrada describe how long he waited for a vote by the Senate Judiciary Committee to get onto the D.C. Circuit. He never really got one, did he, after years and years of waiting. Uh, so this is, again, altering the size of the Supreme Court is not really a response, a, an appropriate response to fighting out the power of the Senate majority leader to schedule votes for Supreme Court justices or lower court nominees. But that's really what they're fighting about. And then the third thing is I think you're both right. I actually hope President Warren, when she takes office and is in the you – know, she's so busy nationalizing this industry and that industry, she can fit in expanding the Supreme Court to 15 votes because it will destroy her presidency. If you look back what happened to FDR, FDR had a, a majority sufficient to amend the Constitution at the time. And if uh, many historians say, putting aside whether it affected the Supreme Court or not in this switch in time, people say it just, it just stopped dead in the tracks FDR's domestic agenda for the rest of his presidencies. So after that attempt to pack the court, which was defeated in the Senate, 
people say the New Deal died and FDR switched to foreign affairs. And so I think if uh, President Warren wants to do that or President Sanders, uh, it'll, it'll actually uh, fully stop all the other dreams, that, uh, socialist dreams that they have for remaking our economy and society. So I hope that they try it and they take uh, office in, two, in a year. The problem with that, though, is at that time, as reflected by the Democratic Party's position on all of this in Congress, there was a much deeper and wider consensus and understanding of the, the role of the courts. Today, I mean, 10% of college graduates think Judge Judy ser is serving on the Supreme Court today. Uh, and, I would take you know, that as a well, I, for some of the I would too, but it's not <laughs> true. Uh, you know, there, there is, there's such a shallow understanding as the roots are going, are so shallow as to people's understanding of what the courts are supposed to do, why an attack on, on the courts like that is a bad thing. I mean, listen to, there, there's not exactly a howl coming up from across the land, uh, about some of these very direct and blatant efforts to intimidate the court or to restructure the judiciary. Uh, I just, my concern is that uh, that having been changed, uh, those kinds of efforts uh, can potentially be much more successful. It, it really does take a, a, a better understanding by our fellow citizens of the way the judiciary is supposed to work to kind of inoculate against some of these more uh, extreme kind of efforts. So in a moment or so, I'm going to be opening it up to questions, so start to formulate those. When I, when I get to you, uh, just keep it very short, end it with a question mark, and say who you are as a courtesy to our, uh, our panelists. As a Tom, before you talked about uh, Scalia being confirmed 98 nothing or 97 nothing, I was, I mean, it, it's important to remember that at the time he was on a panel with Chief Justice, well, soon to be Chief Justice Rehnquist, who caught a lot of, of fire. Um, uh, you know, there were only so many, so many bullets you have in your gun, and they, were, they aimed them all at Justice Rehnquist's attempt to become Chief Justice Rehnquist, lest it's Scalia. So that, that wasn't a, a smooth confirmation process either, I don't think. And I've also been, been thinking about the tit for tat that's going on, first blowing up the uh, filibuster for nomination short of the Supreme Court that Harry Reid did, and then during Gorsuch, extending it to Supreme Court justices, and, and now doing away with the post-closure 30 hours of debate. Uh, so there's a lot of tit for tat going on. What does happen? How should the Republicans respond, or how do you think they will respond if there is a President Sanders or President Warren? Anyone have any thoughts on that? Can we put this well, the, back in the bottle? Th this happens to be uh, an issue where the correct position, philosophically, historically, etc., about the proper role of the courts can be a very powerful political position. I, I've always believed that, and I still do. Uh, I, you know, I don't know where things are going to go sort of tactically. I do think it's hard to put a genie back in the bottle completely about that sort of thing. But the, the position, the conservatives' position, the position that most Republicans have taken is a very strong position. It can connect with the way most people of common sense uh, think about the courts. Uh, and, and there's a greater need than ever for them to do that. There, there isn't any substitute for that. Where, where, else, where else are they going to go? I mean, otherwise, it's uh, uh, the idea of an independent judiciary, which is what distinguishes our judiciary from, you know, 
Scalia would talk often about countries that have written constitutions, some of which sound better than ours. Uh, why does it work here and not there? Because we have an independent judiciary. Uh, once that's gone, that's not coming back. So um, it, it's got to be defended on the same basis that America's founders established it on. And I do think uh, that, that that ground can be made up by returning to that uh, that kind of an issue, core issue. I, I, I would say, I think people talk about putting the genie back in the bottle, but I'm not sure if the goal is if we need to get back to a just confirming everyone without looking at it. Because I do think there's important differences in the way judges approach the law that merit the Senate looking at them. I mean, it's not supposed to be an automatic thing. The Senate's given advice and consent to serve as a check on the president. And uh, so I think it's it's perfectly correct to have those debates about how is this person approaching the law. I think it'd be a better world if both parties were trying to appoint originalists to the court or something. And then, again, we wouldn't we, we could all move forward and happily and have an objective look at it and not worry about, about uh, the, the personal politics that come into it. What I think is the real problem that needs to be done away with entirely is making it about the politics of personal destruction, because that that is not the grounds on which any of these things should be fought, and that's where it's getting particularly ugly. I think it's fair to expect a a reasoned debate about someone's judicial approach, and uh, you know, say what you will about how accurate the um, the debate was about, say, Robert Bork's opinions. I don't think it was a, necessarily a fully fair debate in terms of articulating his his approach and philosophies, but at least it confined itself to that. Uh, area versus let's try to do a, a complete destruction of a human being here, and let's not even let go. Let's continue that on for the re- remainder of their uh, their career. So I think that has to be utterly eliminated uh, from the process. And I think I think one way to you know the way to do that is what what we've uh, already mentioned, which is people need to understand why those tactics are being used, and it's what's at stake. I mean, you're absolutely right. The, the real issue and, the, and the, the, the issue that must be debated are differences in the power of judges and how judges go about approaching what they do. And the reason that one side uses tactics like that and try to destroy people personally is because the kind of judiciary they want, an all-powerful judiciary where their entire agenda is in that basket, they'll do anything uh, to, to try to achieve it. And people need to understand the connection between those tactics and that broader issue. It's not just, though, what's at stake. It's also because it's perceived. It, they wouldn't do it if it wasn't perceived to work. Part of the reason some of these things weren't done historically is because it was just seen as beyond the pale. The American people would not stand for that. Even the fact that Clarence Thomas was confirmed by a Senate controlled by the Democrats. Like that, you, you, they, I think there were people who said, you know what, regardless of the fact that I'm a different party than the person, I don't think keep my... It's it ultimately constitutionally even is a is a political check on if if the people want their elected representatives to be cutthroat no holds barred maybe they'll that's what we'll get and if people don't want that there's also been no accountability uh, in in place for the people that have done things like submitting no knowingly false allegations to the Senate so if you I think it, we can be thankful that it didn't the most recent attempt didn't block. Kavanaugh from serving on the court so that they didn't have at least that incentive. But if it's perceived as a win, like, oh, good, now we have eternally discredited him in every decision and every conservative vote he takes, they're going to repeat it. So I think the best way to do it is to hold people accountable in every way we can 
And I think sometimes the only way that makes sense to senators is electorally. So that's the American people's decision if they want to do that. So now I know why I'm on the panel, because I disagree. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So so one, I think uh, it's entirely healthy for our political system to uh, use political tactics when the court is deciding all these questions. I would rather uh, see people who care about gun rights or abortion uh, fight, continue to fight for their issues uh, as the Supreme Court assumes more and more control of it. Actually, what I would worry about more is if these issues went to the Supreme Court and everyone, we all kind of sheepishly accepted whatever their views were. Uh, again, this is the Supreme Court's fault, though. I think the Supreme Court has expanded its jurisdiction to issues that were not originally intended to lie within its province, that these were supposed to be political issues. And so the Supreme Court has no one to blame but itself. And it would actually be, I think, a sign of an unhealthy democracy if we all just sort of accepted judicial supremacy over all of these issues uh, and not continue to fight about them. And the second point is, it sort of bears on this, the only way to stop it if you really wanted to stop it is that Republicans have to do the same thing to the Democrats because it is a kind of one-sided escalation. I don't recall Republicans really doing anything like this to Soto, Justice Sotomayor, Kagan, or Justice Ginsburg, or Justice Breyer, or and so Garland. yeah, or Garland, and who I think are all you know fine justices, and you know I have no personal uh, beef with them, but I want to know if Ruth Bader Ginsburg has an email server with classified information on it, right? Like, why are people investigating them the way they investigate political candidates? Uh, I think that's entirely appropriate, and this is sort of the, something that comes from. Uh, I don't like my work in game theory and national security. This reminds me of uh, nuclear weapons, strangely, in that um, there's no defense for all these cheap ways to attack a nominee, right? As Carrie was just saying, you can make any kind of unsubstantiated allegation, hand it into the FBI and demand an investigation, slows up a confirmation and force someone to respond to the essential question, you don't beat your wife, do you? Right? So what's the answer to that? There's no, you know, the defense, you know, is expensive and you have to do it. The only way, and there's no cost of just lobbing more bombs at nominees. So the only way to get that to stop is you have to do that to other size nominees, unfortunately. But that would be the only way to restore any kind of order is to say there's some kind of mutually assured destruction if we're going to all pick apart everybody's personalities uh, and records in this way. And it won't stop until it happens. Uh, there was that historical precedent of the independent counsel uh, yes. law that the, the Democrats loved it until all of a sudden it was being aimed at President Clinton. And then everybody decided that they didn't like the independent counsel anymore. So now we have special counsels, but we don't have independent counsels. All right. With that, I'm going to uh, stand up and acknowledge from both hands. Uh, and before I call on the first person, Tom, I know at one point you cited some, some data. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've started at Heritage at your behest a judicial tracker. Uh, do you want to oh, right. mention mention to people sort of what that is? Uh, heritage.org slash judicial tracker. The judicial appointment tracker provides current and comparative data for Trump and the previous five presidents on seven different components of the, of the appointment process, uh, from vacancies and nominees to hearings, confirmations, cloture votes, roll call votes, that kind of thing. And you can see pretty dramatically how the the mechanics, how just the process itself has radically changed over time. And I think it it does well to provide data in a way that, that is properly comparable. We update it all the time. So heritage.org slash judicial tracker, and I hope that'll be a useful resource for everyone. Let's start with Roger. Can you get a microphone over here? 
Thank you, John. Roger Pilon with the Cato Institute. Um, I'm going to pick up on your question, John, about what the Republicans should do in this context and, and direct it to Tom because he's put his finger, it seems to me, on the real issue, namely uh, the role of the court in this. Remember that uh, Dianne Feinstein began her questioning of um, Gorsuch by saying, how can we be sure that you will be for the, not be for the corporation, that you will be for the little guy? Uh, this is a direct attack on the rule of law. Now, do the Republicans ever put together, you, you from your experience, sort of a concerted effort to go after the Dianne Feinsteins and their ilk when they take this approach, which is a direct attack, as I said, on the notion of the rule of law, asking uh, Lady uh, Justice to remove her blindfold effectively? Um. No, they, they, they haven't. And, and um, the, the, I mean, they're, as far as holding people accountable and consequences for that, I'm not sure what those consequences would necessarily be for the senator. But using that as the, that sets up the real issue. Uh, when, when John Roberts used the analogy of the umpire, it's, it's that same idea. Um, our, what's the problem with, it, with demanding that a nominee under oath promise in advance how they're, who's, Whose side they're going to be on? That's the question Ted Kennedy asked of John Roberts in 2005. Uh, immediately challenging that. Use that as the opportunity, have the right issue having been put on the table. Problem is, there's a bunch of Republicans who don't believe it either. Um, but that, that would be the opportunity. That, that, the door is open. That is the issue. Uh, and uh, instead, we sort of get sucked into the, uh, the more narrow issue of, you know, whatever, abortion or whatever it happens to be. It's the broader issue of are judges supposed to take sides and, uh, and put their thumb on the scale in advance. Um, if they did, I, the American people would respond. I'm convinced of that. Good afternoon. My name is Christina Jackson. And my question is, we know that we have the precedent, thank you uh, to John, for removing through impeachment um, Supreme Court justices for, I'm hoping, crimes that were actually adjudicated before they were sworn in, um, not just accusations. But in addition to a, impeachment, it, are there any precedents for removing judges who were, say, close to 100 years old and have miraculously survived several serious uh, health threats and uh, may not be actually sitting on the court for large periods of time? And if so, um, why, why doesn't the, the Republican base do something about that? Uh, the, the, the answer to that is no. Um, there, there isn't a means to do that. The, the, the one standard for removing federal judges is, in, is impeachment for treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Being old is not any of those. Um, it would take an amendment to the Constitution to broaden that category of methods to remove. The, but the issue is not how long a judge serves. An issue is not how old they get. The issue is what kind of judge they are. So I think, um, for me, my, my opinion is that that can be more of a distraction, sort of a stop me before I kill again kind of thing, where you, you, you change the rules for getting rid of, you know, judge, you'll get rid of the good ones too. 
so I, but I, so I think the core issue is the kind of judge they are, the kind of judge America needs, and, and we ought to return to that as often and as aggressively as we can. I think what's happened historically is that when a judge gets in that position, the other judges start to take work away from that judge and urge them to retire. I think that's what happened. That's probably true. Douglas is the end. Towards the end of his career. Uh, there's only been one effort, so far as I actual effort, where there was a trial to impeach a Supreme Court justice that failed. But there have been other lower court judges removed, usually for something quite typical, like taking bribes. But mental capacity no. wouldn't be around for. I, this no. is this Not is an interesting historical no. issue because when Jefferson, so Jefferson did try to impeach judges because of ideological disagreement with the Federalist judges who Washington's Adams pointed. And uh, with one judge, he claimed the Jeffersonians claimed the judge was a drunk. And so there was this claim that he might have been a little bit crazy. Of course, he was from New Hampshire. So uh, but who knows whether he really was This is a judge pickering. Then the second time when they then they impeached him, then they moved to try to impeach Justice Chase from the Supreme Court. And they made similar kind of claims. But it, it was we all the historians consider it really veiled. Uh, you know, sort of pretextual reasons, but they say he claims Justice Chase was intemperate from the bench and given to outbursts. So it's interesting. In the beginning, they were trying to, uh, the Jeffersonians did try to create some kind of grounds that you could remove a judge or a justice for erratic behavior, maybe medical problems. Um, but everyone knew it was really, you know, Jefferson really just wanted to re- remove Federalist judges. And so I think ever since then, uh, you know, this good behavior standard has not been, you, you know, applied to mean, you know, physical uh, disability. And, 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 if, and if there's a benefit to, um, you know, the higher profile that the judiciary has today and media coverage and all of that, uh, it's frankly that uh, it'll be a very, very rare case where a federal judge just says, I'm going to hang on no matter how I behave, no matter how I'm perceived, no matter how weird, you know, I act that their perception of by the public uh, is very, very important, and there will be, as John suggested, the, uh, some efforts come to bear that when people ought not to be on the court anymore, that they are kind of urged to move on. Jack Geis, I just wanted to follow up a bit on the public perception and the Merrick Garland nomination. I'm not sure the public perceived it as a mere exercise of the Senate majority leader's prerogatives. And I do think that's influenced the way the process is viewed on both sides. And I'd just like your thoughts on that. This is something that's frustrating to me as having worked on it closely because the rhetoric that was the, – the problem is, it, it in fact, it was an exercise. They, it is completely within the prerogative of the – the Senate to decide how they're going to bring these things up and the majority leader to do so. And historically, lots of nominees who haven't been confirmed have just not been brought up for votes. And that's like Miguel Estrada. I mean, Supreme Court nominees as well. So it's totally within that. What was so frustrating is hearing people, even people who should know better, like Liz Warren, saying this is somehow unconstitutional for them not to bring it up when it patently isn't and has been brought up. So I think part of the frustrating thing is as a rhetorical point and as a to try to uh, drum up support, you have people who make these hyperbolic cases and then it creates the public perception that somehow this is a, a power grab that just is not doesn't isn't reflected accurately. So I think it's partly trying people trying to turn it into a political talking point that don't do justice to the actual underlying 
law there, unfortunately. Also, I mean, if President Obama really wanted to get a vote on Garland, he could have placed more pressure on the majority leader. He could offer a compromise in some other area. I don't think President Obama minded that the seat was held over because what happened? everyone thought Hillary Clinton was going to win anyway. So they just assumed they were going to get to fill the seat. So they were happy for it to be a campaign or political issue that they never expected Trump would win and get to fill the seat. That was that's the real constitutional check on it. If they were doing something, if they held it open for four years, maybe the American people would kick the bums out. Maybe there's a certain point at which people would say, hey, I, I, I this is this is uncalled for. And it's really the American people that gets to decide that. And in 2016, we learned that actually a whole lot more people were happy that seat was kept open than the alternative. You can imagine it having gone either way at the time, and at the time it was far from obvious that Donald Trump would win. So it was really in the roll of the dice that, uh, in, in some ways, but the political check uh, is the one that we've got. Still in the back. Is there a question back there? No. Okay. I'm sorry. Let's go to you, Roman. Thank you. Uh, Roman Bueller, McLean, Virginia. Um, I've seen polling data that show that by a three-to-one margin, uh, voters would support a constitutional amendment to uh, prohibit Congress from changing the size of the Supreme Court. And my question is, do you think that the efforts that are being made to discredit uh, Justice Kavanaugh are part of a concerted leftist uh, strategy to delegitimize the court and make it and reduce the, 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 the opposition to court packing so that eventually at some point they might be able to do it? Um, pr- probably. Uh, I, I, think it's a, I think it's an effort to, to, put, to, to put a huge question mark on the legitimacy of the courts in general and the Supreme Court in particular so that the only consideration that's left is a political one. A decision you like is a correct one. A decision you don't like is illegitimate. Uh, even if you listen to Senator Whitehouse, and uh, there's some indications in the brief, but also is speaking to that issue more broadly, how does he know that, that, the, that the Supreme Court is too political? Well, the only way he knows is because it doesn't rule the way he likes often enough, right? So they want to they put the legitimacy of the institution in flux, in doubt. However you do that, uh, and so it's this drumbeat so that the only consideration that's left in the long run is the politics of the underlying issues that the court addresses. Last question. John over here. John Vecchioni, Cause of Action. Um, My question is to harmonize maybe all three on on the question of personal attacks against Democratic nominees. Strikes me that the Democrats' efforts have been very successful, as you pointed out. They got Kennedy for Bork. They got Souter because the president was trying not to cause controversy. If you believe that Roberts has been influenced, I've heard that. I don't have evidence personally for that, so I'm not going to go with it. But if you believe that, they've had big wins. And they've had the Trump loss and the Senate losses of 218 on the other side for doing that, I would argue. Um, what do you th- – and also there's the echo chamber of – the left, if we were to do that, if the, if the Republican side were to do the Democrats, I don't think it would be successful. So I'm not just being uh, high-minded here. But my question is, what series of losses, political losses, to this type of behavior by the one side would be necessary for it to cease? I... I it's hard to imagine because the left puts so much importance on the control of the courts. It goes to Tom's point. When you think of the 
it's what they teach in schools. It's what they think is the purpose of the courts and the legal system is just to is just another form of the exercise of power and it's designed to get what you want. If the stakes of what you get, what you want, are so high at the court now, I can't see what losses would cause them to have a disincentive from continuing. If you can, if you were to ask a lot of the Democratic base, if you continue to do this, this means Roe versus Wade will be kept as precedent. Do you think they, what losses would they accept, right? <laughs> to get them to stop, it's hard to imagine what those would be politically, including losses in Senate seats or even presidential elections because the control of the Supreme Court is more important for people who care about that issue or gun control or race or religion. So what would end it is sufficient losses that they don't have the power to do it anymore, even though they might still want to. Uh, so, but I do think, I think at the end of the day, they don't, they don't care about packing the court per se. They don't care about intimidating. It's like whatever, whatever works. So they're happy to do it through packing the court. They're happy to do it through just getting their winning elections and getting their people in. They're happy to do it through blocking conservative nominees. They're happy to do it through intimidating the court by whatever means necessary, amicus briefs, or whatever. It doesn't matter. They just want to have the court doing their yeah. will. So, so, long, so long as the American people uh, believe that the judiciary is just like the other two branches, that it's, it's another bite at the apple. If you don't get it over here, you go over there. As long as they don't, uh, as long as they no longer have a, a, a conviction about the, what, the separation of powers, that, uh, that idea that judges are supposed to do this and legislatures are supposed to do that, uh, and that's been largely gone for decades. Uh, but as, so as long as that continues, on what basis would people care enough about that to vote against uh, a senator or uh, who – you know, believes otherwise. I mean, the, the trajectory is all in that direction, in my view. So th unless that changes, there won't be any basis for people to say, you know, if you believe that, I'm going to vote against you. And it's going to continue unless that changes. Well, thank you all for coming. And I hope to uh, see you at uh, more of our Preserve the Constitution series. Uh, and with that, please join me in thanking you.